episode 143 of the Motorcycle Men Podcast. I am Ted, here in the V-Twin Cafe, over in the corner booth. Thank you for tuning in. And, of course, thank you for listening to this show. And, of course, listen to all Motorcycle Men episodes. If you would like to help out the show, you can go over to our website at MotorcycleMen.us, and there you can make a one-time donation by clicking on that Donate button right there with a singular PayPal donation. Another way you can help out is to send us some feedback. You can go over to iTunes and give us a rating, good, bad, or indifferent. It doesn't matter. And while you're at it, you can go send us an email to motomenpc at gmail.com. Or you can go to our contact page on the website and send us a note there. I read all of our email, and we will comment if we think about it. Don't forget to visit Cycle Gear for all of your motorcycle needs from clothing to parts. Cycle Gear is your premier one-stop shopping location. And with 136 stores nationwide, you're bound to find a store near you to help you find what you're looking for. You can trust in receiving great pricing and top-notch customer care. And if you're in New Jersey, be sure to stop in at the Edison store and see Chainsaw Ginny or Sean and tell them that the motorcycle men sent you. And for the best in motorcycle jeans, there's only one place you should be going, and that is Tobacco Motorwear Company. Dave and the crew over there make these motorcycle riding jeans that will outperform that old ratty pair you are currently wearing and most other brands available. Not only do they perform well, but they are also the best looking and the most comfortable selvage jeans you will ever wear or own. And for further protection and style, get yourself a California riding shirt. It's comfortable, safe, and it looks absolutely beautiful. I wear a pair of tobacco riding jeans and the California riding shirt each time I go out on my bike. They feel good, they look great, and they give me that extra security when riding that I want from my gear. Tobacco Motorwear Company. Visit them at www.tobaccomotorwear.com. And tell Dave and the crew over there that the Motorcycle Men sent you. And when you place your order, use the coupon code MOTORCYCLEMEN when ordering. Now, the Pacific Coast Highway, the Lincoln Highway, the loneliest road in America, the Dragon's Tail, the Blue Ridge Parkway, the Overseas Highway, the Road to the Sun Highway, and the Great River Road. These are all just a few of the most famous and best motorcycle rides and roads in America. But none of these roads emit that nostalgic feel or emotion. None of them have the history. None of them have been the subject of movies, books, songs, television shows, YouTube videos, or websites. And none of them have the same worldwide desire, worldwide now, desire to traverse its full length and it's the world's most famous road that would be the mother road route 66 joining me now on this episode is one man who has made route 66 his passion hi joining me now all the way from st peter's missouri 
This is Roman Rich, and he's going to be the first non-motorcycle rider on the show. Roman Rich, welcome to the Motorcycle Men Podcast. Thank you very much. Now, the reason why I got Rich on the show, and a lot of you who uh, like to do long-distance touring, long-distance riding, and have a desire to ride one of the most iconic highways in the world, I'll say, Rich is the guy you want to be listening to. You want to watch all of his YouTube videos. Roman Rich has, there's a thing called Hooked on Route 66. So, Rich, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and exactly what you're doing? Well, uh, I live to explore and to promote all things Route 66 related. So I kind of got started in it years ago, and the fascination snowballed, and I've been just going up and down the road, finding and discovering anything I can that's unique or novel about Route 66 and trying to bring it to the world. Well, well, why don't you tell us about Hooked on Route 66, and if you could, give us a little brief history of Route 66. Um, Hooked on Route 66 is a website I created, uh, www.hookedonroute66, because I felt like uh, I had an addiction. Um, I'm so passionate uh, about it that uh, I've spent thousands of dollars over the course of many years exploring and promoting 66. So that's kind of what the website's devoted to is the exploration and the promotion of all things Route 66, uh, the people, the places, the road itself. Um, that's where I really got started was just trying to find the road. When I first discovered you was on YouTube and I saw your amazing, uh, was it your aerial documentary of Route 66? And I, I watched the whole thing from front to back and I was amazed. I said, I got to talk to this guy. Give us a brief, a little brief history of Route 66. Okay. So Route 66 started when all other numerical highways started in the United States, and that was towards the end of 1926. Okay. Um, that's when it was created. Before that, we didn't have any real uh, federal system of numbering highways. Right. So being that it's an even number, it runs east to west, and your odd numbers run north to south. But uh, it starts in Chicago and works its way all the way to Los Angeles, which is kind of strange because it kind of goes north and goes south, but also goes east and west, and it's not quite a transcontinental highway. But um, I guess being that it connected two major cities with a couple of other major ones along the way, mm -hmm. it, it, it became popular really quick. Yeah, you know, because the longest highway in the United States is Route 20. Mm -hmm. And then next is the Lincoln Highway, which is probably more, which is more popular than that. Yes, and which also goes east coast to west coast. Well, why do you think they didn't make Route sixty six go east to west coast? You know, I honestly believe the fascination of Route sixty six purely deals in the number. Sixty six has such a powerful ring to it. It's been adopted by you know Bobby Troop. Wrote the song about it. That didn't mm -hmm. yeah. hurt any. Uh, Phillips 66 Gasoline has some ties to the name. I just think, uh, and, and being that it's right in the center of the United States and it takes people to California, you're going to find yourself on it at some point in your life. Um, whether you were born and raised in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, etc., you're going to find yourself on that highway at some point. And, uh, yeah, you just got that allure uh, you're surrounded by it. Your Lincoln Highway is cool. Dixie Highway is cool. 
but nothing quite touches the imagination and whimsical feelings that you get on Route 66. Yeah, you know, I don't think there's an, any other road in the world that is iconic as Route 66 is. I don't think so either. I mean, you've got clothing, apparel uh, branded after it. You've got just people from all over the world just dying to travel it, spending tens of thousands of dollars to come over here for two or three weeks in driving Route 66 or riding Route 66. Uh, so it, it, the, the numbers don't lie. Uh, we probably get more tourists from abroad than we do here in stateside. Oh, absolutely. There are hundreds of videos on YouTube of people from all around the world doing a tour of Route 66 from beginning to end. When I was one and a half years old, uh, 19... 59. I am dating myself, I know. My parents drove from New Jersey to Santa Barbara, California, and they actually picked up Route 66. Yeah. And took it uh, halfway or halfway through. They somehow, I don't know how they got there, but they ended up taking Route 66 from mid part of the country all the way out there. I don't remember any of it, obviously, but my mother will tell me the whole story about it. It's pretty interesting, though. So what was your inspiration just to embark on this monumental task? You know, I was fascinated with Route 66 at first, similar in fashion to what you kind of just said, taking road trips. Yeah. You know, my road trips took place right before the decommissioning of, decommissioning of Route 66, which happened in 84, 85. You're not Route 66 actually was killed off by the Federal Transportation Board. We used to take road trips down to a family farm that my dad purchased in 1982, mm-hmm. and we would cross over this road at, at a certain point, and almost every time my dad would remark about crossing over this road, he'd say, we're crossing over Route 66, that's the road you take to California. And he may tell another story or two about Elvis or somebody else traveling this same stretch of road. Right. Um, but almost every time he would mention that road. And besides that, you know, I've got paving in my blood. I, I grew up paving. My dad owned a paving business. Uh, I started at a very young age, helping him out at five years old. He would always take me. Mm-hmm. Usually about midpoint in the day, I would crash out on the seat of an old Dodge pickup truck, you know, with my face stuck to the vinyl seat, all sweaty and nasty. But, uh, yeah, I mean, those... That's a great memory, right? Yeah, those are the good old days, you know. And, and so my mom, she was big into archaeology, and I loved digging and finding artifacts. So the two kind of culminated together, and uh, I found myself with my face pressed up against the window looking at all these roadside attractions and just different cool stuff along the side of the road, and probably what was most curious to me was these dead-end sections of road that seemed to be cut off by the interstate as we traveled. And uh, when I got older and was able to drive, I started exploring more of these old roads, and that led me into pathways, and eventually brought me back around to Route 66. See, it all comes back to 66. Now, how long have you been at this? Uh, I first started traveling Route 66 in the early 2000s, just out of curiosity, playing around with it. But I didn't really start getting hardcore into it until about 2006. Uh, and that was about the time movie the movie Cars came out, the Pixar movie. Yeah, that is my favorite movie ever. And, uh, you know, yeah, and you know, I may be dating myself, but at the time, uh, I was a newlywed. I had just gotten married in 2006, so I wasn't like that, you know, 
13 year old kid or 10 year old kid but yeah i we went and saw the movie i didn't know anything about route 66 being in the movie but i i was a car guy i might not be a motorcycle guy so much yeah but i'm a motorhead so my wife and i went to go see the movie cars and lo and behold there's route 66 as the number one subliminal star in the whole movie and it just pushed me over the edge i mean i had goosebumps during the entire movie i had just told my wife i said we we've got to go do this for real and we did we set out right away and we traveled half of route 66 and we came back a year later, traveled the other half of 66. Then we had a daughter, and we brought her along on Route 66. And I started playing around on the computer, doing map research. And because here in St. Louis, Route 66 crosses over each other. Oh, really? Yeah. So many people don't know that Route 66 is not exactly one road. It's a culmination of lots of different roads. Or actually, Well, now it is, right? Well, that's yeah. Just- yeah, it's an, it's an evolution. So... So that got me thinking. I was like, how can Route 66 be in two places at the same time? So that's when I started doing research and and really digging deep into it. And before you know it, I'm buying a truck. I'm building GPS systems and computers to sit in my truck and just going crazy about it. I'm like the Batman of Route 66. I got this, all these toys. Isn't it funny how our passions turn into obsessions? Yeah. You know, really, really quickly. And then we just go off. I know it is for me. I just go off the deep edge when I latch on to something. Something like that. Now, have you traveled the entire, the original route and all the realignments? Yeah, I would say myself with maybe a half a dozen other fellows over the course of the last decade or two uh, have traveled more inches, more square feet of Route 66 than anybody else in existence. I mean, we've got this motto amongst my, my fellow explorers called EFI, and it stands for every freaking inch. Or I like that. Insert other expletive. And we're willing to jump over fences and fly drones and, you know, just get guns drawn at us, which has happened to many of us. We've all had guns pointed at us before. For- no, really? Oh, yes. Oh, you know, getting chased off of people's property. And yeah, so... I've traveled the whole thing, and but the cool thing is, is that we find more and more every adventure we go out. We find just a little smidget more uh, that we didn't know existed. Now, how have you been traveling? What was your your means of transportation along this route? My my chief means of exploration have been through the Route 66 Adventure Truck, which is a 1994 Chevy Blazer, full size Blazer. But I've got that's a, that's the one that's the one that's in your videos, right? Yeah, that's the one in the videos. But I've got another arsenal of other transportation devices that help me get to where I'm going to. Just short of a helicopter, I've, I've got what I need. Uh, you like using that drone. Uh, what do you got? You know, I've flown a number of different drones over the years. Since about 2013, I've been flying drones. And uh, in the video that you made mention of earlier, most amazing views of Route 66, we used four different drones to film that. Oh, wow. Okay. Everything from a, a blade, which is kind of a hobby toy, to uh, your, your Phantom, which is your typical uh, drone that you find these days. And then we also used two different drones from a manufacturer called Unique. Did it take you a long time to get used to the drone? It, it did for me. I had a pilot that would uh, fly for me. I'd take him along all of our Route 66 missions, and he would fly because back then it, it took a lot of skill, and I just kept crashing crashing the stinking things uh we've we've crashed a few we've lost a couple we actually had one returned six months after we lost it oh really yeah it's it's a pretty big investment you know people uh, when drones are really hot they're not so hot anymore but when they were really on fire people would ask me all the time what kind of drone should i get and i would always tell them 
get the most expensive one that you can stand to lose. Yeah. If, if that, that's great. Focused, I like that. Yeah. I mean, if, if you can withstand losing 3500 bucks, then get that one. But if you can't, then you need to get a cheaper one. Is that how much your drone cost you? My most expensive one was just under $4,000. Oh, my God. And what's the fly time on that? That one, honestly, is a piece of junk compared to what I have today, which only cost me about $1,200. Wow. No kidding. Now, I know everybody seems to gravitate towards the Phantom. Yeah. The Phantom is like the iPhone of drones. And, and, oh, okay. And with good reason. They've got a lot of good stuff. And it's, for the most part, they're very simple to operate. Um, they've escalated their game here in the last 24 months with some very very great optics on their on their cameras right uh, and that's what i'm flying today is a phantom 4 pro how difficult was it to map out and retrace the original path of route 66 it's really really hard you know boots on the ground is not is is just not everything so I, I, before I answer your question, what people, the listeners, have to understand is that the entire route, Route 66, wasn't even paved until about 10 years after it was designated. No kidding. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. So you've got a lot of sections that were actually never even graveled. They just were dirt. Wow. Yeah. The infamous Jericho Gap through Texas was never paved. And if you go out there today, it's still not paved. It's still dirt. And you can still drive it. But uh, so... Looking for a stretch of pavement is is not the uh, the chief goal in mind. You're looking you're looking for these swaths. You're 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 combing through aerial archives from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, construction data. You're I mean we're calling uh, general contractors that did highway work on Route 66, and we're asking to comb through their archives. And it, there's so much data out there, and that's why we're still finding sections of 66 today that we didn't know existed. And most of those were never paved. In fact, all the ones that we're finding today, I would say three-fourths of them were never paved. They were they were a dirt section. Well, I wonder, why do you think that was? Uh, well, back in the old days, if you didn't have the money, you didn't, you didn't do something. They didn't uh, have loans and right. all these programs set up, and there was cost-sharing a program set up between counties and federal government. And sometimes these counties were poor. Take, for instance, uh, if you look in, oh, I forgot the county name, but Miami, Oklahoma, or as if you're a local, I'm going to get crucified for that. <laughs> Outsiders are called Miami, Oklahoma, but it's really called Miami. If you go from Miami, Oklahoma to Afton, Oklahoma, there's a stretch of highway only nine foot wide. It's called the Sidewalk Highway. It's a section of Route 66. It predates Route 66 by a few years. But the reason why it's only nine foot wide is because the county can only match funds to accommodate half of the width of the of the paving. So they, they could afford half the project. So they were going to either pave the whole thing, the whole distance, half wide, or they were going to pave half of it full width. So they elected to pave the whole thing at half the width, which... Actually, there's many sidewalk highways floating around the country that did the same exact thing. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is I think most of us think that Route 66 was a federal project. So why wouldn't the federal government fund that? Well, that's that's another kind of misconception people jump to immediately is they think, okay, they started Route 66 and they built it right away and it's done. No, they didn't do that. They took roads. They took pathways. They took trails that were already in existence, and they just put a signpost on them and said, bam, this is Route 66, at least for now, and uh, that's, <laughs> wow. that's the path. That's the highway. 
Oh, and, and really? that Oklahoma Cyborg Highway was one of those. It only lasted for a couple of years before they bypassed it and improved it. Now, speaking of bypasses, now Route 66 has been realigned many, many times. Yes. Now, what was the reason for all these realignments, and can you give us some examples? It's with anything else that uh, mankind does. We're always looking for improvements and better efficiencies. And Route 66 was was no stranger to that. So uh, people figured out uh, really early on as motorists started to travel more because in the late 1920s, people started to become more fascinated with motor cars. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ten years prior to that, people were still using horse and buggies. Wow. Yeah. Henry Ford, you know, changed all that when he made the car affordable. But uh, so as interests amongst the uh, populace gained for traveling, not just Route 66, but any highway, traffic increased and s- concerns for safety increased. Uh-huh. So most of your highways were routed right down through the middle of town, through the Uh, centers of commerce, so to speak. Well, that got to be dangerous, so dangerous, in fact, that many towns uh, elected to build underground tunnels to cross under Route 66 or other highways for for the sake of safety for kids. You'll see a lot of those near churches and schools. There's, I think, think there's about half a dozen of them along Route 66. Uh, Only three or four still exist today. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So getting back to your question, why were there so many realignments and bypassing? Well, if, if you kind of take, I, I always explain this the same way. So if you take a tree and you cut it down, you have all the tree rings, right? Yeah. Route 66 did the same thing. So the center of town would be the center of your tree. Route 66, in most cases, gradually grew around it in tree rings. One highway became archaic, and so they layered around and bypassed it with another highway. In, in some cases, they bypassed... Uh, complete counties. They just said, you know what? This is way too far out of the way. We're just going to cut you off and make a straight line this way. And uh, the probably the worst case of that was Santa Fe, New Mexico. It it lost out to Route 66, uh, bypassing it in 1937. So Route 66 actually went through Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah, it's, it's and, definitely one of the most beautiful drives you can experience. And then they just, the federal government or they just said, you know what? Forget that. We're just going to go straight here instead of going around. Nah. Which reminds me of that scene in the movie Cars where they were looking down on the road and then he just bypassed and then, you know, they're missing it. They're missing everything. That's the truth. And there's a political story about the Santa Fe situation. Uh, oh. And I don't know it verbatim, but you can look it up. It's it's a it's not a legend. It's 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 a fact. The governor lost uh, lost out to a race or something in uh, in the late 30s. Uh, and he was going to get voted out. Mm-hmm. And so he said, basically, to hell with New Mexico. And he thumbed his nose at all the people in Santa Fe and says, I'm bypassing Santa Fe. And they, they put it right through Moriarty and connected it to Albuquerque, completely bypassing wow. uh, Santa Fe and shaving off, I think, about 200 miles off of Route 66. Really? Yeah. So what was the original length of Route 66 from start to finish? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's a question I get all the time. Oh, really? Uh, okay. No, we would have to, you know, we would have to go back and, and dig and, and do some really complex math and, and you know, that's just the thing. Some sections of Route 66 
only existed as Route 66 for months before they were bypassed or realigned. Wow, that's a, it's, that's actually a shame. Does that does the realignment continue today? Of modern roads, it does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, as far as well, well, you said Route 66 was decommissioned in what 84? 85. Yeah. 85. What was the reason yeah. for decommissioning it? It it just was. Uh, its time was up. It wasn't useful anymore. The designation uh, didn't really apply because. Interstate 44 and 40 and 15 and all these different highways, interstates, had had just made it obsolete. It just wasn't relevant anymore to travelers, unlike your, your U.S. 20 or 80 or 50 or any of those. It just didn't have any relevance anymore. But, you know, to, to people like you and I or in, in the thousands of motorcycle riders and even explorers like yourself, they still find that those kind of roads like that, you know, valid. And yet the federal government said, nah, forget it. Pretty much, yeah. But that doesn't stop anybody from, you know, living the dream and yeah. and following the old pathways because I would say in my best estimation that 80 to 85% of whatever was Route 66 at one time is, is still drivable in some form. Some sections of Route 66 and its later inclinations at the at the end of the evolution actually morphed into the interstate. There's a lot of sections through Missouri that were used as Route 66. That oh wow, really? That turned into the interstate. Yeah, they called it Super 66, which <laughs> it didn't it didn't look any different than what uh, the interstate looks today. In fact, the trip that you took as a, a one and a half year old, you probably drove a lot of the interstate today instead of good old Route 66. Yep. Now, as far as goes for the mapping of Route 66, are there maps anywhere available of the original Route 66 route? Yeah, I've got a lot of my good friends that are very talented that have, have taken the time and, and used their wisdom to create good maps. Okay. My two best friends that, that did it, Jerry McClanahan, and Jim Ross have both published maps on Route 66, some together, some apart. Uh, there's a map set that you can buy, an eight-state set. Um, that's available on Amazon. Jerry McClanahan has his Easy Guide, which is probably the absolutely most popular Route 66 book there is mm -hmm. and probably the most used guidebook. It's very simple to use and easy to read. There's also a number of apps that are popping up, but people ask me about those and I, unfortunately, I've never used them because I created my own GPS app starting about 10 years ago and uh, never looked back. I just use my own stuff now. It's funny. I guess you find whatever works best. And because Route 66 is as iconic as it is, there, I'm sure there's hundreds and hundreds of resources available that, that may have helped you along your uh, your search. Yeah. There, there were, you know, I, I took a look at other guys, uh, their maps. Uh, I've collaborated with other fellows about their research. You know, other people have pointed me towards the GIS mapping and some of the historical aerials and stuff like that. And that's that's where these guys, and that's why I've never competed against them to come out with my own map. These guys, have been, well, Jerry McClanahan, he's been doing it since 1981. I mean, okay. he's he's he that that man there has literally devoted his life to Route 66. Oh, yeah. He's got it in his blood, obviously. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Did, you, did you use Google Maps and Google Earth and you know Street View for a lot of your research? I used everything that, that would possibly give me any kind of a glimpse at all yeah. into finding something on Route 66, usually Bing Maps or Google Maps or uh, even Apple had their own map program and Yahoo did any anything at all. And the, the USGIS... They had their matching system. They still have it. We still use it. Uh, we're always finding new stuff. And then, you know, going back to the archives of 
uh, of the original routing system, which was placed by the uh, California Auto Club Association uh, for national old trails. We, we take a lot of their strip maps and use those, too. And then there was other trails, too, like BF Goodrich sponsored a trail. Oh, and yeah. They had, oh, yeah. They had their own maps before numbered uh, highways. Yeah, there was a lot of those. Uh, you know, Route 66 follows the Ozark Trail, the Pontiac Trail, Santa Fe Trail, National Trails. So we use a lot of those maps, too. It's just there's a plethora of maps and research that you can wade through to figure all this stuff out. Now, you've seen a lot of history on Route 66. Now, what are some of the most remarkable sites that someone might see on Route 66? It's it's the sites in and around Route 66. Um, every state has its own unique landscape. And I think as your riders uh, and travelers are, are riding down 66, being on a motorcycle is going to help them experience that sensation better than anything. First and foremost, every single state is unique to its own. Illinois is different than Missouri, Missouri different than Kansas, Oklahoma, etc. And you're going to smell different air. You're going to feel different levels of humidity. You're going to see different landscape, different trees, different flowers. To me, that's like the most awesome experience yeah. is, is driving across the country, seeing these different landscapes and then seeing the different cultures. But as far as the actual landmark sites are concerned, you know, it's it's the blue whale in in Catoosa, <laughs> Oklahoma. Who hasn't seen the blue whale? Yeah, it's it's getting out there in the mud and the wind at Cadillac Ranch and eating a bunch of dust while you spray paint a car that's got three inches of spray paint on it from the last five decades. Um, it's it's going out and seeing uh, the painted desert, you know, national park, or even going north to the Grand Canyon, and seeing the plains of Illinois and all the all the wheat and the corn blowing in the wind. And uh, to me, Illinois, what what is most remarkable? Uh, as I was growing up, people used to really downplay Illinois and traveling through it, but if you travel through Old Sixty Six. It's the town squares and the unique people and, and the unique communities along the way. Every little town has its own square and its own unique local culture. You know, getting to California, it's looking across the Colorado River and how green it is and, and seeing California for what it really is. And, and then thinking of, like, the Jodes. When the Jodes had to make their journey in the epic movie Grapes of Wrath, they came to the shores of California and uh, they weren't real impressed. <laughs> you know, it's getting there and you see the desert, you know, for the first time where you, you know, you go to, into Oatman, Arizona, and you see all the, uh, the burrows roaming about. And, or uh, leading up to Oatman, you got Sitgreaves Pass, which is one of the windiest stretches of road you can experience on Route 66. There's just so much. It's just being out there and being a part of it. You feel like you're part of the road. Uh, one of my favorite things that I saw watching your uh, documentary was the wigwams in Holbrook, Arizona, because that was like a direct link to the movie Cars. Interestingly enough, so there's two wigwams, and, and yeah, the direct link there is to the Cozy Cone. Right. Fantastic job from the Pixar crew at Disney. I mean, they couldn't have embodied it any better than a traffic cone. It was fantastic because, you know, they, what people don't get is the subliminal meaning behind that cone. You know, 
Lightning McQueen said, yeah, people usually avoid cones. Well, right. probably most of your travelers that stayed in those wigwams along the way in the, in the 40s and 50s were probably white people. And they usually, you know, back in the day of Indians and cowboys, you know, white people kind of avoided cowboy, uh, uh, Indians. So there's a subliminal undertone there. But um, there's two of them left. One's in San Bernardino and the one that you mentioned is in Holbrook. Yeah. I kind of like the one in Holbrook because it is 90% true to its original form. In other words, the furniture, the bedding. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, it's it's a it's a time capsule. And that, and that dates back to when? The one in Holbrook? Uh, the 1940s. And no kidding. Wow. The man that built it, his son owns it and operates it. And, and his name is Clifton Lewis. He's an older fellow today. But he is a wealth of information. If if one of your riders gets a chance to stay at the wigwam in Holbrook and they can sit down and talk next to the fire with, with Clifton Lewis, if they're lucky enough to meet him, uh, they're going to have one heck of an experience. The man is just awesome. And to boot, you're, he has such an amazing little museum there in the lobby, and you would never know it. Uh, the, the museum he has, he's got petrified wood, he's got weapons, he's got pictures. It's just Wow, it's just cool. Sure. How many times have you seen movie cars? Oh, my gosh. You know, I've got five kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I'm guessing two or three hundred times, probably, at least. Uh, I'm probably up around three, four hundred times I've seen that movie. And I never get tired of it. So never. you like it? Oh, oh my God. Just a little. <laughs> it's my, it's my favorite it, movie. Does it bring a tear to your eye? Oh, my Every time I watch it, I was like, you know what? It's just like the whole thing is because I love the desert, first of all. Uh, yeah, I've been out to Utah a few times, and I just lo- I love the desert. So the whole desert thing just like really captivated me a lot. But uh, getting back to some of the historical things, now on the main route that exists today, that what is the path of Route sixty six? Yeah, you've described some of the historical things there that you've seen. But what about the old alignments, the original alignments? Some of those historic things that you've seen there. Tell us about some of that. Well, you know, a lot of those are really primitive. They don't have a lot of your old motor courts and stuff along them because that, that didn't exist in the 20s and 30s. Uh, there were no motor courts. People slept in their car. They camped next to their car. Uh, motor courts came about and evolved out of the necessity because people would stop and and knock on a farmer's door and say, excuse me, sir, can I camp in your pasture out here for the night? And they'd say, sure. Well, Farmers got sick and tired of that and finally started building some little shanties that people could sleep in. And before you know it, they evolved into motor courts. So you don't get to see a whole lot on those old alignments besides the actual road. Uh, and, and the obsessive compulsive nature of myself and my fellow explorers, we're always looking for culverts. Um, that is like pretty much the only improvement that you'll find on these uh, prehistoric stretches of road. You might find a concrete culvert or a stone culvert, uh, anything that allowed water passage under the road. Mm-hmm. And when we find one, we're just like, oh, my gosh. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's really not much in the way of improvements. You might find uh, possibly some remnants of an old gas station, maybe an old fill station. Yeah, the, things like that. Yeah, because I, I watching your your documentary. There were some spots where there are, uh, on some of the older sections of Route 66, where there are uh, abandoned hotels, abandoned gas stations or restaurants or diners. Uh, there was even that, um, I guess it was 
the cabins where you kind of rescued the sign. That one. Yeah. <laughs> John's Modern Cabins. Yeah, yeah. That's on one of my preservation lists. There's, in fact, it's sad because John's Modern Cabins is, is only John's Modern Cabin right now. There's only three quarters of one left. Uh, so if you're going to be riding Route 66 this year, you, you better get down to Jerome, Missouri and check them out because they probably won't be here next year unless I can save them. But to your question, most of that stuff didn't exist until your 1930s alignments of Route 66. Right. Um, and by then, your original alignment, in most cases, had already been bypassed. Oh, that's a shame. So, like, these people would build these buildings, you know, uh, hotels, gas stations, whatever, and then they would get realigned right right around those things. Yeah, and yeah, many times. So, like, uh, in Pontiac, Illinois, there's a little log cabin cafe. Now, if, if you want to explore a little bit, if you go behind the cafe you'll see some concrete slabs. That's the original road. That's the 1926 alignment of Route 66. Now, in front of the cafe is the 1930s alignment through 40s or so um, before it ultimately moved out closer to the interstate. Um, what they did uh, when they when they bypassed or when they, when they realigned that section of road and abandoned that old concrete slab, the people of the cabin, supposedly, according to legend, actually picked the cabin up and spun it around so that it faced the new road. And there's there's more cases than that. The Ariston Cafe in Litchfield is another one of those where it used to face the old road, and then they put an entrance on the backside. And before that, the owner of the, the, the original proprietor of the Ariston Cafe, he had a restaurant originally situated on the town square of Carlinville, which is the original alignment of Route 66, and then later moved to Litchfield when the road moved. So, yeah, the road brought prosperity, and people followed it. Uh, businessmen followed it uh, religiously because that's where the money was at. Well, have you ever talked to anybody who owned one of these properties or maybe relatives of the former owners that, and how they felt when there was a realignment around their property? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick Adams is the current owner of uh, the Ariston Cafe in Litchfield. And, yeah, he, he said it was a real major uh, deal when Route 66 moved. It was like a death blow. And and so a lot of people, even when Route 66 was decommissioned, they had to move their businesses out to the interstate. And if they couldn't afford to do it, then they pretty well died in place. Wow. It was really sad. Yeah, so. That is, that's a shame. Mm-hmm. You, had to roll with the, you had to roll with the punches and and. Things aren't different today. Um, they're the same way. You know, and I, you have to wonder, I know I do anyway, the people who owned these structures originally, you know, and they said, okay, well, that's it. We're closed up. And what do they do with the property? They just, just give it up or do they still own it? You know, does it get passed down to the kid and say, here, you now have this uh, hotel, which nobody's ever going to stop at? It, that happens. Um, they a lot of them just wither away in the dirt and dust. Sometimes there's so many. We've lost so many great places in the last 30 years. It's just it's sad um, to see this stuff disappear. But again, in, in the grand uh, landscape of things, a big canvas of life and society, there's only so much relevance to go around. Yeah, I guess um, I, I got to say that uh, if it wasn't for things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all those things. We wouldn't even see the Route 66 landmarks that we have today because those uh, social media mediums have given have given people a voice and have made themselves relevant again 
to the touring public. They didn't have that luxury before. You had the yellow pages and billboard ads and whatever else. Maybe an airplane flying around with a banner. Newspapers, yeah. Popular Science Magazine, whatever. That's yeah. amazing. You know, I'm looking at the... Uh, I, I, as you're talking, I'm like scanning through your, your documentary. One of the things that strikes me about this one particular video is the Painted Desert Trading Post in New Mexico. How did you find that? It, you know, my psychic abilities were picking up on that. I knew. I was like, he's got to mention the Painted Desert Trading Post. He's got to mention it. Funny enough, um, I own part of that. Get out of here. You really do. Yeah. No, I own a sec. I own 10% of that uh, myself and 10 other uh, Route 66 roadies. We purchased it back in February. And uh, did you who, who did you purchase it from? There was a fellow out in California who bought it about, oh, gosh, five, six years ago because he was interested in preserving it. Mm-hmm. But then he kind of lost his way in how he was going to accomplish that. And so he put it up for sale, and I heard about it. I was going to buy it outright, but then it wasn't practical. So then I reached out to a bunch of people that have like-minded interests, and we all bought it together, and we're in the middle of uh, kind of rehabbing it. On a funny note, you've just picked up on one of the major errors in my video, Most Amazing Views of Route 66. You see where it says Painted Desert Trading Post, New Mexico? Yes. Yeah, it's in Arizona. Oops. I didn't I didn't I didn't catch that. My my producer did that and I didn't catch it. And we already rolled it out. We already had like thirty thousand hits and then somebody mentioned it and I said, Oh my gosh, that's like to to the major Route sixty six roadies, that is like the crown jewel of all places on Route 66. No it's, kidding, really. It, it it's such a time capsule. It's right on the border of the Painted Desert National Park. There's just so much stuff going on there, historically speaking. It's it's an amazing place, and you go out there. It's a real it's a spiritual experience. Now, was that the Painted Desert Trading Post? Was that? I, it's obviously it was an actual place. What was it? Was it just a just a like a general store, or was it a gas station? What was it? It was a it was a curio shop. It was kind of a tourist trap. They sold gas there. Uh, the fellow's name that built it, his name was Dotch Windsor, and uh, he was pretty, pretty cunning, actually. They didn't have any electricity out there. He had to make his own electricity through wind generator. Yeah, wind generator. They didn't have any water out there. It's the same exact wind generator also pumped his water. They lived out there in an apartment uh, attached to the trading post, and uh, they sold your curios. They sold dolls and probably the rubber tomahawks and and kachina dolls and and all that stuff. Petrified wood was the big thing. It still is today. And they sold all that stuff, and he sold gasoline. And there was a number of other trading posts in the area, but that one survived because of how he built it. He really put a lot of forethought into building that structure. Um, And a second note, if you look that Painted Desert trading post up on YouTube, uh, one of my latest videos shows an airplane landing there in the late 1940s to get fuel and then taking off again. No amazing. Kidding. You know, I, I don't know if it was a hoax or not. doesn't matter. It was an amazing video. The Painted Desert uh, trading post is there in video. It's it's just cool. I'm going to have to look that When was that built? When was the, the trading post built? Uh, that was built in the early 40s. Wow. You know, that, and it didn't last long. So he was bypassed by the, by the highway that later became the interstate. So Route 66 moved out towards where the interstate is now, mm-hmm. and it got bypassed. So um, he, he was only there, I think, for less than 10 years, and then he was out of So this section of dirt road that 
the the painted desert training post is on, it, that was always dirt then. That alignment. No, no, that wasn't. No, no, it was actually paved. It still is paved today. There was an alignment preceding that uh, that that I've explored. Yes, there was. In fact, just west of our trading post that we own is a really beautiful example of a concrete uh, bridge. Still there. You can still drive over it. The National Park Service still uses it. Before that, though, they didn't have any bridges. They had what they call low water crossings, where uh, at some point through a wash or an arroyo, they may have this slab of concrete. Uh, but in many cases through this area, it's all cobblestone, and they're really hard to find. We were lucky enough to find them back in 2012, several instances of these low water crossings but yeah that that was actually a later alignment of route 66 um a, a mid alignment if you will it was kind of a stepchild or a, a middle child of of all the alignments yeah uh i'm looking at the continental divide new mexico of looks like some old abandoned hotel the, the ground is snow covered i can't remember i can't i it can't make out all i see is motel WB yeah, that, Motel? That was a Whiting Brothers Motel. Yes, that's what it looks like. Okay. Yeah, and, and Whiting Brothers was probably one of the most popular chains of gas stations and motels along the Southwest, and they dominated. And from what my older friends told me that actually traveled 66, they told me they were the absolute cheapest on fuel. People, with their their parents would always wait until a Whiting Brothers came up, and then they pull over real quick and get fuel, and they might have to stay there overnight, too. Now, you were mentioning some of the bridges and culverts that, that you were going over. In watching this, I saw that there's a lot, and it's kind of an oddity, I think, where you have this, well, it's a bridge that's built in the middle of nowhere, and, and there's really not really a road that leads to it. Did you see a lot of that? Well, yeah, we see a lot of that, especially through uh, Arizona, <clears throat> because the ground there is so sandy. Mother Nature just reclaims itself so fast. It, yeah, you'll end up with a culvert or a bridge just kind of sitting there in the middle of nowhere, uh, that uh, is no longer usable, but it's just sitting there. Texas is the same way, too. Texas has quite a few of those little culverts and bridges that are just marooned out in the middle of their, uh, nowhere, orphaned, so to speak. Uh, like in uh, Laguna Pueblo, New Mexico. Looks like you had some, some of that going on there, too. There's actually three bridges on that stretch of Route 66. Then, if you look on that video to the north of that bridge, there's this mystery bridge. Uh, there's some abutments there. And oh, yeah, see that. yeah, there's some buttons there, and that used to be a bridge as well. We think for a rail line, we think that was a rail line. And then to the south of that bridge, if you catch it in the right angle on that video, there is some there's a crossing there to the south as well. And we're still scratching our head on that one because there's two grades on both sides of that arroyo. And there had to be a bridge there at some point, but we don't know why or for what. Well, I have to ask now, because there are so many of these bridges. And from what I see on the video, a lot of this stuff is all dirt road now. Well, well let me before I go on with my question, I'm going to ask you another question. The majority of Route 66, was it concrete or was it asphalt? Uh, uh, <laughs> you're talking to a paving guy, too. I don't think there was uh, any you know, decided material at all. I, I, I think it was just a mishmash of everything. Illinois was number one to finish their section of paving, and they did it all out of Portland cement. Okay. Uh, yeah. Missouri used both materials. They uh -huh. used Portland cement, and they used uh, like an oil macadam, which is where they spray the road. And they also used asphalt, too. Uh, a lot of sections of the road, they just they just chip and sealed it with, with oil macadam. I, so, yeah. I, I hate chip and seal. I hate it. I do too. <laughs> I just, why? I, well, I, let me ask you. This is the total detour. 
Why do townships and counties and states, why do they insist on using chip and seal when it's actually useless? Today or 60 years ago? No, today. Places still do it yeah, today. Yeah. Uh, today, I don't know why because it's it's not cheap. It used to be a very cheap alternative, but now it's it's not that much difference than putting on a new layer of asphalt, you know, compacted. Right. Because a lot of, as a motorcyclist and as a cyclist, there are many rural roads in here in New Jersey or in plenty in, plenty in upstate New York where uh, they'll do, you know, oil, fresh oil and chip seal, you know, and chips. It's gone within a week of driving on it. It just gets thrown, but it's so dangerous to ride on. It's such an archaic process. I think the only reason why people still utilize it is because they're stuck in the past. They don't realize the cost difference is not that much more to go with a nice, smooth, hot asphalt surface. And yeah, I agree. It is dangerous. Uh, If you don't get enough oil down, then you have all this loose stone. And if you get too much oil down, you're you're throwing oil all everybody's cars and their bikes and everything. It's just dangerous either way. I, I don't I don't advocate it for it whatsoever. Now, did they used to use chip seal? Uh, on dirt roads, is that how they did it? Uh, no, they didn't apply it directly to dirt. That that process wouldn't work. They had to have some sort of a gravel substrate. Oh, and okay, they, so it was like a gravel, and then they put it down on top. Okay, yep. thankfully they did, they didn't do that on every, the whole stretch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean my question I was going to get back to now is properly equipped. Now there are what we have in the motorcycle world is you might know dual sport motorcycles, uh, adventure motorcycles, and of course you got your dirt bikes. But properly equipped, could someone actually ride the original alignment from start to finish? Because I saw with with your truck, you were out there and you were four wheeling it up some, uh, some, we'll call them paths, for lack of a better word. Simply put, the answer would have to be no. And it's it's not because you're not a good enough rider, you're not equipped well enough. It's because you would have to have wire cutters. Um, oh. You, yes. Mo- almost all of your dirt sections of 66 are on some sort of a ranch or private property, and you're going to encounter a gate or a fence at some point. Yeah. And, and a shot and a shotgun. Possibly. It's, I didn't get, I didn't have a shotgun. I had a guy with pistols. Oh. Called them, called, and one of my uh, cohorts was with me. We called him doc two guns. We had, cause he had a gun in each, he had a gun in each pocket. <laughs> now that you've mentioned that when you were doing uh, your original research and with your truck, you came across that a lot, though. And did they let you pass? In fear of dangering, of incriminating myself, I probably should watch how I answer. I'll just say I was able to view things through a creative process, whether oh. it be through having a mountain bike or having uh, my little one-wheel electric skateboard, which I don't know if you guys have yeah, seen. Yeah, I saw that, yes. Probably my most favorite toy I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, I also had a motorized bicycle I would use, and then when my nerves are really going off and my the hair on the back of my neck is saying, ah, you better not jump that fence, that's when I bust out the drone, and, uh, and I just go for it because nobody sees or hears a drone once it's 50 feet in the air, and um, I can travel about a mile with it before I start losing uh, signal. I can go a little oh, bit right. further, but it's it's better than not experiencing it at all. Oh, did you ever have anybody shoot at your drone? Nobody's ever even seen my drone. Now, if, if you go to that, uh, I did I did a guy a favor once. I, I uh, in my most amazing views video that you keep uh, uh, highlighting. There's a section in Seligman, Arizona, where there's this fellow walking down the sidewalk. 
I, I was flying an area, and he mentioned something about shooting down my drone. You know, and it's interesting about people and, and talking about shooting stuff or shooting people. They, they always underestimate that the other person could have a gun, and uh, I'm one of those people. <laughs> and, so, and so I did him a favor. I put him in the video. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a good friendly way to, to handle that. Now, on the serious side, do you think that local, state, and maybe the federal government should take more of an interest in preserving and perhaps restoring the original alignment of Route 66? Yes. Perhaps, perhaps maybe making it a national monument. Yes. And it's not just 66. You know, here in the States, all you have to do is talk to somebody from Europe. And you get their perspective on history. We are so young, and we take things for granted so much here. We didn't have any world, or World War One uh, or Two, desecrate our landmarks. We didn't have any anything like that happen here on our soil, with the exception of the Civil War, which we seem to do a pretty good job of preserving those those sites and landmarks. But um, when it comes to these. Uh, sites of infrastructure like bridges and culverts and pathways we're, we're not doing enough and people are genuinely interested in them they are spending tens of thousands of dollars to come here from all over the world to to experience these firsthand sure and we are just throwing them away uh and we're not building stuff like that anymore we're not building masonry culverts we're not building trust type steel bridges anymore it, it's just an art that's being lost and man, it just ticks me off so bad because my kids love it. My kids love this stuff, and I think their kids are going to love it too. So yeah, I, I think paying more more attention to our history uh, is is definitely should be a priority for our public officials. Oh, absolutely, especially with something like Route sixty six. Going back to the movie Cars, the one thing that they were talking about is how and how the the town that fictitious town has faded away because of the realignment of Route sixty six and how. The restoration of it, and it kind of gives you this melancholy feeling when you see something like that. And I can imagine you felt the same thing passing through some of these old towns and buildings, the derelict buildings that are are just falling apart. And you wonder why isn't somebody doing something to preserve this for future generations? Because right now, there's there's really aside from people like you and the people that you fellow explorers. There's really nobody out there doing anything to make this stuff last for the next century. Well, the sad part about it is is most of these efforts that undergo preservation or restoration are grassroots efforts or private efforts. There is The National Park System has endorsed many of these projects through the resources of grants, but that program sunsets next year and may not be renewed. Um, yeah, I just shake my head. When I go through some of these communities, such as Glen Rio, which is nestled on the border of Texas and New Mexico, it is the site of the first last cafe, so cleverly titled because it was the first or last cafe, gas station, hotel, depending on which you're traveling. Yes. Oh, I see. Uh, is that is that in your documentary? Yeah, it is. It is. Yep. It's. I uh, wish you, I knew. Where, I wish I knew where it was. I'd go. <laughs> well, when you when you get to the end of Texas and go into New Mexico, that's where it is. And right. it's you know, and I think about that, and I go, gosh, you know, somebody can make a go of this. And what I've noticed in my travels. And maybe this is the way it should happen. Maybe it should be organic and natural and, and not fueled by uh, government or public money. Maybe it should be a private thing because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a libertarian. I think things should just go on their own and not be crutched or uh, uh, supported. 
And so what I'm noticing is, and it's not just 66, I do a lot of travels outside of that. Your small towns, your little courthouse squares, they're starting to revitalize and gentrify a bit. Most of them surrounding microbreweries, which I think is very awesome. Yeah. I don't even drink beer, but I think it's awesome because it's these little gathering houses that people can come and talk and chat and share a drink. And on the way out of here, maybe I'll stop and get a bite next door. I'll pick up some shoes or something. So we're starting to see these centers of commerce breathe new life. And I, I think it's not all lost. People remark a lot about, you know, the things that are lost on Route 66, the people, the places, even the roads. But what you got to understand, you got to grasp, and you, you should probably do this before you set out on Route 66, is you have to understand that Route 66 was all about business evolution. Uh, it was survival of the fittest. It was rolling with the punches. It was making stuff happen or dying. And if you didn't, you, you withered away. And I think people are starting to... Uh, be attracted to the glow of Route 66, and they're starting to create their own little businesses. And and that's cool because that gives people like you and me the opportunity to see something that's never been seen. Uh, right. yeah. you, I didn't see this in a book, but I still think it's cool. It didn't have to be in a book for it to be cool. Um, but, yeah, I, I think people should take a private interest in it. And I think I'm not a millennial. I'm, I'm old enough. I'm Gen X. But I think millennials, because of their attitude towards stuff. They seem to me as a Gen Xer uh, seem kind of, they're not, they're not selfish. They don't have this materialistic attitude much like Gen Xers and baby boomers did. And because of that, I think they're willing to sacrifice having stuff and having an experience. In other words, owning a real live mom and pop somewhere in Main Street, USA, whether it be Route 66, Lincoln Highway, etc. I think it's the way it needs to be. I think uh, these people need to be starting new businesses, microbreweries. Get creative. Have yourself some sort of a hook to get people to come in there because that's what uh, business on Route 66 has always been about. You know, you got Iceberg Cafe and you got this and that and the world's largest rocking chair, which is on Route 66 in Fannie, Missouri. That's what it's all about, and I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, like the Blue Swallow Motel. You know, because it's funny you should say that, because I have a small farm in upstate New York, and it's extremely rural. And many of the uh, towns, uh, and I travel part of uh, Route 20 to Mm -hmm. get there. I travel a good 100-mile section to get there. But I pass through many of these old towns that were established in the 20s, uh, in the 30s, and you could see that probably at one time, all of these communities were thriving and they were busy and they were like really family oriented communities. And now they're kind of like fading away. And you kind of like feel bad for that because you want you want to see what it was like then. And, but at the same time, you also want other people to experience that, too. Anybody who travels on a motorcycle or even just does car trips, you see that everywhere, as you have seen. Yeah, you see it, you smell it, you breathe it. I mean... And if people really want to see that, if they're sincere about their yearning to see these places live on and survive and evolve into meaningful, relevant structures on Route 66, I mean, let's face it, how many museums do you want to go look at on your Route 66 trip? You're probably going to stop at one or two museums in in Illinois, and then you're going to be done with the museums all from 66. (laughs) Probably. I mean, they're cool, but, man, they're time vampires. They just suck so much time out of your your trip. So 
if you're really sincere about saving these places, uh, don't go to Walmart. Don't exactly. Go, yeah. Right. Don't don't do your shopping at the cheapest place possible. Why not stop at the shoe store and pay an extra five dollars for the woman or man who's been killing themselves to pay rent to keep their shoe store available to you on Main Street? Uh, pay. That's what the millennials are doing. They're they're doing that. They'll pay five dollars for a cup of coffee at Starbucks because it's special. <laughs> yeah, they'll, I hear you. They'll pay eight dollars for a beer at some microbrewery because it's special and one off. They're into the experiences. And if you want to see these places live on, man, you only live once. How much money do you need to take with you to your grave? Spend that money. I'm talking to the baby boomers right now. Spend some of that money. And help support these special places that bring those experiences to you. I've spent my money, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so this, uh, you, you created a stencil uh, for Route 66, and have you? You've brought that to some towns. Have many towns adopted that and started using? I've sold a handful to different towns uh, when I first set out, and this is back in 2010. Uh, with when I was really getting hot and heavy on my research, and I was gung ho, and I was going to do all of Route 66. In six weeks, I was going to do it all. Well, you know, eight years later, or ten, no, ten, yeah, eight years later, I'm still doing it. But uh, I, I thought, you know, when I rolled out into Kansas for the first time, I think in 2002 or 04, there was these Route 66 signs on this bridge. And at the time, I was just trying to travel Route 66 by sense. Uh, I've got a kind of a sense for old roads. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure if I was on the right path, but when I saw that Route 66 sign painted on the pavement on that bridge leading into uh, Galena, I thought, wow, that is cool, man. That just rolled out like a welcome mat to me, and it gave me goosebumps. And I thought, well, that should be everywhere. Why don't they have that everywhere on Route 66? Wouldn't that be easier yeah. than having signs? So I started going along and painting signs, mostly on the orphaned or remnant sections of Route 66, just so people could verify uh, whether or not they're on the right path. And wow. got a lot of good, positive fanfare about that. I need to go paint a bunch of them over again, and a lot of them are faded. Uh, I, I got a lot. I mean, I see so many pictures with my shields painted on the pavement, people laying down next to them or crouched down next to them. And it just tells me I did the right thing. I've had a few negative, Absolutely. critical people, but not enough to, to phase me. Just a couple of sections of, uh, of Route 66 I'd like you to tell, tell me about. Tell me about the oil can station in New Mexico. Okay, so that is between San Juan and Tucumcari. Neat gas station. It's falling apart. The awning's about done. But the, uh, the awning and the gas station alike are completely shingled with oil cans. Now, I, No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's now, great. now, what people would like you to believe is somebody sat there when every car came in. Let's uh, let's use a Nash because they used a lot of oil. <laughs> a Nash comes rolling in. You dump two quarts of oil in it. You take the can. You smash it, and you make a shingle out of it. Well, I don't really think that was the case. I think somebody had an inside resource at the local oil can factory and was able to get a whole pallet full of oil cans and skins because yeah, it's just done way too nicely but that doesn't detract from the novelty of it it's it's a pretty cool gas station you got to stop and see it now it looks like you see off to one side it looks like there's a, a bit of pavement off to the right is that one of the original alignments of Route 66, or is that an existing alignment of 66? Okay, i got to get my bearings here. So we're looking at the oil can station. 
And the oil can station's to the right, and then further to the right is another road. Or it's hard to tell from the views uh, that I'm seeing here. Yeah, it's hard. To there tell. is a there is an older alignment that runs parallel to the existing road, and there used to be an old wooden bridge as you uh, head off to the west. There's a there's an arroyo there, and there you can see the old bridge abutments that are like basically like wooden telephone poles planted in the ground. But, yeah, yeah the, there is an old alignment that just runs right next to the existing alignment through there. Okay. that's pretty. It's, it's very interesting, though. There is another section of um, 66. You, this was a separate video. It wasn't part of this one. But it looks like it's go, it goes through the center of a quarry. Okay. And it seems to be elevated, and the quarry's on both sides. It almost looks like if you blew on it, it would fall. So over. you're talking about my off-limits Route 66 video. That's the one, yes. Yeah. That was in McLean. Illinois, just a, 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 a southern suburb of Chicago. What happened there was Vulcan quarries, Vulcan materials, decided to get a little too close to the road, and at some point they compromised the integrity of that road, and they had to close it off and route. Uh, well, it wasn't Route 66 at the time. It was completely bypassed at that time. But anyway, they had to re- bypass historic 66 around that quarry because it's too dangerous to drive on. And if you ever get a chance to walk out to it, which I'm not telling you you can or can't, I can just tell you there's not a no trespassing sign there. Uh, yeah. You'll notice that there's some major disruption there in that roadbed, and it's probably not safe to drive on by any stretch of the imagination. But okay. if you check out the video, you will witness Route 66 that you can't see in any other way because the drone just captures this crazy road right in the middle of this quarry it's probably i don't know three to six hundred feet deep <laughs> yeah i know i was looking at that and i'm thinking that's not going to be standing much longer well i don't know vulcan doesn't own it they can't they can't quarry it and and compromise it any further they have a lawsuit i think but um i think the state of illinois still owns it i, I don't know I, they're not tearing it down so you know there's a whole bunch wow. of material there i'm surprised they're not utilizing it but hey that's another historic section of 66 oh, yeah. that it deserves to stay there if you get a chance to watch it you should check that out speaking of videos let's let's talk about this for a second now we've been mentioning your your aerial tour of route 66 uh, throughout the whole interview it's quite a production and there's a, the footage is absolutely amazing first of all how much work was that putting that whole thing together and have you pitched this to like discovery or travel channel or oh i get this request all the time uh, really? Yeah, I, I've actually been questioned by a couple networks before. Well, let me go into answering your question. So tens of thousands of miles uh, over the course of about three years, multiple drones, some crashed and destroyed. Uh, you know, that production probably cost me somewhere around $10,000. Wow. And, um, you know, it's 53 minutes long. When, when Jamie and I set out, that was my producer, and we set out to create that video Boy, did we have ourselves fooled. We thought we were going to make this amazing views video that was going to be like 10 to 15 minutes long, and it was just going to be great, and we were going to do it in like two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) How long did it take you start to finish? Well, I mean, again, the footage came from three years of research of my own, and and Jamie was there with me on some of those those trips, but it took us about eight months to put that all together, and I think I made Jamie's hair turn gray as a result. Uh, yeah, I was breathing down his neck all the time, and I think his computer died as a result. And but yeah, I think it was about ten thousand dollars. We then we left so much out. You know, that's the one bad thing about that video is I get a lot of criticism 
oh, you left out Flagstaff or you left out uh, Winona or you left out this or that and the other. I'm like, we didn't leave anything out. We just didn't put it in there. Uh, yeah. We couldn't make a three-hour video. Nobody. I well, mean, we could. I didn't well. think we could watch the 53-minute-long video. And, you know, 255,000 views later, I was wrong. I underestimated the uh, YouTube yeah. crowd there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I was looking at that. You have over 250,000 views on this right now. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a multi-part series, you know, and I'm sure. Uh, I, I did notice that there was no narration through through the the entire movie. You had some um, you had some music put in there. Was that was that music provided by locals or was that some some of that actually from existing artists? Yeah, Jamie sourced out most of that music through bands that he knows. Uh, there was one band in particular. Uh, that I'm a big fan of. I know the artist close closely, and he provided his music. You know, that's the tough thing with with YouTube. All works have to be original right. or license free in order for you to monetize it. So that was a challenge. We did that. Um, and yeah, I didn't want to narrate the video because I wanted pe- I wanted to captivate people's attention. I didn't want to distract them with my voice or anybody else's voice so much. Right. Uh, the only exception to that rule, rule was inserting Angel Delgadillo right there towards, like, I don't know, if it's, not, it's not the midway, like one-third of the way through. No, it is about the midway. We inserted Delgadillo, uh, Delgadillo in there a few times because he is just such an awesome guy on Route 66. If it wasn't for him, we may not have a historic Route 66. He's like the grandfather of Route 66. He started the original, the first historic route 66 association back in the 80s uh, amazing guy oh that's great no, but have you uh you, you have had offers from some networks to have this put uh out? not that particular video um doing a series of, of sorts uh, like a reality show on route 66 and i've got some other ideas up my sleeve i can't really talk about too much but Understood. uh we we thought about uh doing a self-produced uh show you know, and I've got some sponsors that are interested, but I've got five kids. I've got a busy work life, and I, I'm trying to do preservation projects. I, I don't know if, if it's the right move or not. You know, I'm praying about it, and if God thinks it's the right move, then I'll be there. I'll do it. I think what you have with this with this film, I even at 53 minutes long, I, they could easily stretch it out to over an hour. But uh, I think you've got something really special here that I think, believe that people should see. I really think people should need to see this. Well, later on, later on this month, they can watch it on YouTube for free. Uh, sure. And feel free to do it. If, if you if you watch it on YouTube for free, the only thing I ask is that you share it with two or three of your friends. Um, that helps me out and helps them out with their Route 66 experience. But I think later on in late May or June, I'm supposed to be taking delivery of DVDs of that movie. And then there is uh, an extended reel uh, with some bloopers and stuff, and then there's also a narrated version. So uh, you can pick the normal version that you see on YouTube, or you can pick the version that has me talking about all the different parts of the film. And well, that's so, great. Yeah, and that'll be available on my website, hookedonroute66.com, hopefully by the end of the month, if not June. I will be putting my order in for one right away. Awesome. So why don't you, where can people learn more about Roman Rich, Route 66, and everything that you're doing? Best place is Facebook. 
Uh, you can just look me up on two places. I'm, I'm two places on, on Facebook. I'm at Hooked on Rich 66, the page. Or you can find me by my name, which is Roman Rich, like roaming without the G. Roman Rich. Um, and I'll pretty much friend anybody. I've got room on my friends list. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> you can follow me there. I do a lot of live broadcasts. Uh, I do some stuff on my website, too. I do a lot of things on YouTube. You can go find me on YouTube at Hooked on Rich 66 as well. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter as well. Any last comments or suggestions to anybody who has not experienced Route 66? Probably the best advice I can give anybody is is go buy a couple books. Go buy Jerry's book, The Easy Guide to Route 66. Maybe buy another couple other books. There's many talented authors out there. Do some research on it for a couple months. Otherwise, you're going to be disappointed. And then when you go, don't be disappointed if you don't see everything. Set your expectations low. And just know that if you take your time and do it slow and maybe not do the entire Route 66 trip, that you're going to enjoy enjoy yourself. This is not about a destination. I, I, I have this quirky little name that I came up with called Destinationist. That's the people that hop in the car and they take five Red Bulls and they drive straight through to Florida and miss everything along the way. That's the Destinationist. I know exactly don't, what you're talking about. Don't yes. be that guy. Be the guy no. who drives five under the speed limit. You know, making everybody mad and, and you know, yeah. checking out the sights and smells. But if you can't do all of Route 66, if you only have a week, okay, well, then do Illinois and then come back to it. That's that's really the right way to do it. Uh, you, you can't – if you try to do it all in two weeks, you're going to come back saying, well, I did Route 66. I wasn't that impressed. Um, and, and trust me, if you do it the right way, which is taking your time and maybe not doing the whole thing, you'll find yourself coming back time and time and time again and telling your friends about it. And it'll be the trip of a lifetime. Of all of Route 66, is there? do you have a favorite part or spots in Route 66 that you do? Do I have to reach it by motorcycle? No, any way, any okay. way or means. Okay, you can. my... Probably my most spiritually beneficial place to Route 66 is La Bajada Hill. That's in New Mexico, south of Santa Fe. It is the site of so many different explorers that came before myself, all the way back to the Conquistadors. They tra- wow. Yeah, they traversed this escarpment. I mean, you, you're looking south over towards Albuquerque. In fact, you can see Albuquerque from the escarpment late at night. And it is just truly an amazing place. And it's it's virtually unchanged from from 90 years ago. The, the gravel road is still there. There's two alignments of 66 through that section. Um, one national trails, one a, a more modern alignment that was paved for the very uh, short section, but the rest was gravel. Um, lots of little twists and turns and, and uh, uh, switchbacks. Just an amazing place, and I love it. Unfortunately, you can't drive it today because it's owned by three different entities, two that are federal. One is, is Navajo, and they're kind of at odds with each other right now on who has control of what and who's going to improve what. But you can still go out there and walk it. Amazing place. I love it. It, just, it, it's, it is the time warp for me. You, you see everything through the eyes of how people saw it in the 1920s and 30s. Wow. One of my other favorite movies, and I'm sure you've seen, is Wild Hogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's some Route now, 66 stuff in there. That, as I understand it, Route 66 passes to, through the town that they call Madrid, where Maggie's Diner is. Yeah. You know, it's been about 15, uh, probably 10, or 10 to 15 years since I've seen that movie. I saw it when it first came out. I don't remember, to be honest. 
Okay. If you're going to cite a motorcycle movie and, and Route 66, it's Easy Rider for me because they took off out of California. They crossed over into Topak, over the Colorado River, going into Arizona, and they crossed over one of the bridges that's no longer there. But to the south, you can see the old 1920s Na uh, National Trails Bridge. It still stands. And then they made it into Las Vegas. Not Las Vegas, Nevada, but Las Vegas, New Mexico. Probably one of the most beautiful towns in New Mexico. Not exactly on Route 66, but it's only about 10 minutes from Route 66. Okay. And it's it's virtually unchanged today, too, from when Jack Nicholson and everyone else, uh, Dennis Hopper. Who else was in that cast? I can't remember his name. Oh, I can see his oh, no. face. <laughs> I can see his, I can see his it's, face. It's the father. It's the, the guy from the Grapes of Wrath. Gosh. Yeah. Fonda. Fonda. Yeah, Fonda. Yeah. Fonda. Henry Fonda. That's right. right. And he was even in Wild Hogs, but not, not Henry Fonda, but uh, his son was in uh, was was in Wild Hogs as well. Speaking of some of the things that you've seen on Route 66, are there any towns or, or places that still exist on 66 that have that neon light 1950s kind of feel? To okay, it? so for you neon uh, junkies out there, you, you're going to want to see Albuquerque. You're going to want to see... Uh, Williams, Arizona. You're going to want to check out Tucumcari, New Mexico. Those are your big three that are really on fire with neon right now. Uh, and it's 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 coming about all over the place. St. Robert, Missouri is going to build a neon park, I think, next year, right there by Fort Leonard Wood. Lots of, lots of people are getting into neon right now. The U-Drop-In, which is in Shamrock, Texas, that's someplace I should have mentioned earlier about landmarks. It's this Art Deco gas station that a guy designed in the sand and brought it to life, and it made an appearance in the movie Cars um, as uh, oh, Ramones, the, the painter. Oh, yes. That's, that's, right. that's the gas station, and it's all lit up with green neon. Oh, that was Flo's, right? Flo's gas station. No, 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 no it's not Flo's. It's Ramones. It's, was it Ramones? Yeah. Yep, it's Ramones. Flo's is lit up as neon, too, but Flo's was uh, an incarnation from the Pixar team. But if you get a chance to get out to Anaheim, Flows does really exist uh, no, no at, at the Disneyland Park, and uh, it's beautiful too. But no, uh, Ramones, the painter who uh, Cheech uh, Marin played, uh, yeah. that that is the you drop in in Shamrock, Texas. Oh, beautiful no guy. kidding. Beautiful game. That's fantastic. Uh, see, now I want to watch Cars again. <laughs> um, all right, Rich Russell, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on the Motorcycle Man podcast. You have been an absolute wealth of information for me, especially, and it's certainly for our listeners. And I hope everybody really just swarms your website and your YouTube channel. <laughs> but I would, that would be, I would love to see everybody just check this out. It's been absolutely a joy to speak to you, and I would like to have you back on the show again. Sometime. Anytime you want. I can always use new friends. Uh, just remember, my motto has always been go your own way. Right, exactly. Go your own way. Rich, thank you very much for joining me here on the Motorcycle Men Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode 143 with my guest, Roman Rich of Hooked on Route 66. You can learn more about Roman Rich and Route 66 by going to www hookedonroute66.com that's hookedonroute66.com and when you do contact them please mention that you heard them right here on the Motorcycleman podcast uh, links to uh, Roman Rich and his website are located on the uh, Motorcycleman website and also in the show notes so please go over and check out everything he has on his website and check out his YouTube videos. And I promise you, 
after watching his videos and listening to this episode, you will want to do Route 66 as much as I do. So, speaking of YouTube, go over to YouTube and check out the Motorcycle Men channel there. And there you can listen to all of our shows as well. And also check out our Facebook page, which is Motorcycle Men Podcast on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our fellow podcasters out there. Our fellow podcasters, YouTubers, our fellow motorcycle bloggers. Those links you will find on our links page. All of these podcasts and YouTubers and bloggers and Facebook pages that all have to do with motorcycles. They are out there. They're doing great things to promote and encourage our sport and passion. So please make sure you patronize them. Coming up next on the Motorcycle Men podcast, we got our new series going on now called Rider Rides. You want to talk about your bike? Well, here's your opportunity now to give us a review of the motorcycle that you own and ride. That's right, folks. Coming up, we have that now. That's a new series now. It's, these are individual episodes. All you have to do is go to the Motorcycle Men website at MotorcycleMen.us and go over to the episodes page. And there is a form there. You have to fill out your name, your email address, and you tell us what kind of bike you have. And then submit. We'll have our staff select one of you to be on the next episode. This is an individual interview episode. This is not part of the regular show. From Timbuktu, Chris the Joker, Justin Shoes, and me, Ted Rungway, your host. Thank you for listening to the Motorcycle Men podcast where we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Enjoy your ride, kids. <laughs> 